Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Behind the Knife. Today, we are quite honored to have Dr. Douglas Wood, who is the Henry N. Harkins Professor and Chair of the Department of Surgery for the University of Washington. He completed his undergrad and medical school education at Harvard, and since then has completed general surgery residency, as well as thoracic surgery fellowship at the Harvard affiliate Massachusetts General Hospital. He is now a world-renowned surgeon in thoracic oncology, specializing in the areas of lung and esophageal cancer. Dr. Wood, we are very honored to have you. Well, uh, Wu and and your team, thank you for including me. Uh, This is exciting. I haven't done a podcast before, and my uh, teenage daughters now think I'm a little bit cooler than I was before uh, since they're listening to podcasts all the time. So thanks for uh, including me in in your program. Absolutely. Uh, So we just like to start out with the basics. Uh, If you could just tell us how you got to where you are and how you ended up on the West Coast and how you ended up as a leader in thoracic surgery. <laughs> well, well, there's there's probably a, a bit to that story. And, I, and maybe I'll, if I think about that, it really probably harkens back a lot to my upbringing in terms of a lot of the foundations that I think have helped me be where I am. Um, I grew up on a farm in uh, southwestern Michigan, and neither of my parents had gone to college. They were both farmers and children of the Depression and of World War II, and uh, really taught uh, basic ethics of self-reliance, hard work, uh, respect, integrity, uh, tenacity, those kind of tools that I think I took for granted or maybe railed against when I was young that uh, have uh, have helped me make it through a lot of the the steps that I've gone through. And and you guys well know what it's like being a surgery resident, and that takes a lot of hard work and tenacity. And I actually look to the upbringing that my parents gave me to, to help me be successful. Absolutely, sir. Um, so you grew up in a farm, and then, you know, what led you over to the East Coast after that? Yeah, it's kind of a interesting question how little little things can make a big impact in your life, and how individual people touch on our lives and and make a difference. Um, you know, I had a high school biology teacher who thought that I was talented, and took me aside when I was a junior in high school and and recommended that I apply for a National Cancer Institute summer program for high school students. And I ended up applying for that. My parents supported me doing it, and I spent the summer actually at Purdue University uh, doing veterinary research and studying life sciences. And, and that was it. That was good and well, but the probably biggest impact is that the majority of the students there, there were uh, 40 students in the program, 
were from East Coast prep schools, places I had never heard of, Exeter, Andover, Groton, et cetera. And they were all talking about SATs, which I also had not heard of, um, and, and going to college at Ivy League institutions that had never uh, entered the uh, idea of reality for me. I figured I'd go to Western Michigan University if I went to university at all. And I kind of came home and I said, you know, I think I'm as smart as those people are. And I, and I said to my parents, uh, I think I'm going to apply to Harvard. And my parents said, no, you're not. <laughs> That's ridiculous. You're not going to apply to Harvard. And um, uh, I applied to Harvard secretly. Uh, I didn't tell my parents. I got together the 35 bucks for application fee, and I applied to Harvard and Michigan State. And um, I was accepted to Harvard, and so that got me to the East Coast. Why not the University of Michigan? <laughs> um, fair question. Is there my the if you're in Michigan, you pick Michigan State or University of Michigan as the big state school that you're aligned with. And my family was a Michigan State mm. kind, so uh, I didn't apply to University of Michigan. It was kind of off the table. Makes great sense. Uh, it's the same down in Florida. <laughs> yeah, got it. Well, all of our states have that. So uh, th that my my sister uh, ended up getting going to grad school at Michigan State, and her kids did. And you know, no nobody is a Michigan uh, person; only Michigan State. And then, so uh, at Harvard, how did you end up uh, deciding to apply to medical school, and then eventually uh, get into surgery? I think I was always interested in medicine and in surgery. There was a uh, I went through a period of time of thinking of maybe marine biology. I studied biology in school. and um, But I think that I, I really liked the uh, clear impact that one could have on, on people by being in medicine. And this again gets into the people that influence you. And I was on the, the crew team at Harvard. That's, uh, you know, and that was in the 70s. And uh, our coach Harry Parker is legendary, and and the teams in the '70s were legendary. And and Harry Parker and my teammates, I think, had a a big influence on me as well as uh, in terms of developing uh, the discipline and the tenacity uh, to succeed in medicine. They're not the reason I went into medicine. Actually, only one of my other crewmates. Uh, became a doctor. Many of them studied other areas, but uh, it it's another aspect that created a strong foundation for later success in my mind. Mm. So I can definitely see how the discipline you know meshes so well with your personality and and your drive to go into surgery. Um, within the surgical subspecialties, how did you end up liking thoracic surgery? When I was a medical student, um, you know, I was, I was poor <laughs> looking for anything to make money. And I, in between my first and second year of medical school, I got a job in Larry Cohn's lab. And, uh, Larry at that time wasn't yet the chief of cardiac surgery at 
Brigham Women's Hospital, but he was a uh, up and rising kind of mid career cardiac surgeon. And he was an important mentor for me in medical school. In fact, I worked in his lab in between first and second year of medical school. And at the end of the summer, uh, Larry said to me, well, Doug, you can continue to work in the lab, but it's a full-time job. So if you, if you want to, you can. And I made the decision to continue to work in his lab. And I did not I essentially did not attend the second year of medical school, meaning I didn't go to any classes. (laughs) I worked full-time in his lab and studied at night and took the tests. My wife, who's also a physician, says that that's why I'm kind of dumb about pathophysiology. Um, But actually, I think it ended up being a big success because I got a paper out of it. I made a a lifelong friend and mentor in Larry Cohn, and I, I... learned how to operate. I was operating on, I was doing heart surgery on retired racing greyhound dogs. And uh, actually, it it got me going the rest of the way towards cardiothoracic surgery, which uh, I was already kind of leaning that way. And it tilted the scale all the way. So you were operating as early as second year of medical school. Uh, Yes, I was. In in fact, um, yeah, I was doing uh, operations that were isolating coronaries on uh, hypertrophic left ventricles as a second-year medical student. But then my first operation on a on a human, human which is kind of an amusing story, uh, Larry Cohn was uh, at that time doing both cardiac and thoracic surgery. And he had a patient with a large thymoma that he wanted to operate on. And, and I don't remember what the detail, but for some reason, he couldn't get operating time at the Brigham. So he was, he was mad and said he was going to take the patient to the Baptist Hospital, where he also had privileges, but didn't have residence. Mm. So he, comes to the, he, he calls down to the lab and says, Doug, I need you to come assist me at surgery at the Baptist Hospital tomorrow afternoon. No way. And so I said, and so I'm a second year medical student. I haven't done one thing clinical at that time. And so I've never been in an operating room. I've never touched a patient. So I show up and at the scrub, and he, at the scrub sink, he says, you know, Doug, I only ask one thing of you. Don't embarrass me. <laughs> so, so of course that's immediately what I did because I didn't even really know sterile technique that. I was not doing survival uh, surgery on these dogs, so I was doing it with non-sterile technique. I went in, immediately contaminated myself, <laughs> got you know thrown up against the wall by the scrub nurse, and, and and with Larry kind of shaking his head. But I also, in later years, told Larry Cohn that that was the moment I decided to be a general thoracic surgeon. And I said, Larry, because I realized there's absolutely no role for a cardiac surgeon to be practicing general thoracic surgery. And I said that, that this is a good time for me to declare my specialty and take it away from, you know, amateur cardiac surgeons. He, he of course really didn't like that very much. (laughs) So sir, after uh, fellowship, uh, kind of, can you tell us uh, your career progression and how you ended up uh, chair of surgery at the university of Washington? Yeah. So um, I I looked at a number of jobs when I was finishing residency and 
um, you know, one thing leads to another. Uh, you know, I think that I had narrowed jobs down to uh, one at UCSD or one here at the University of Washington. And, and I was really impressed and admired Ed Verrier, who is the chief here at the University of Washington. He had just been the chief for a couple of years at that point. He was young, dynamic, visionary. And, and I thought that he cared about me. Uh, and as somebody taking a junior faculty job, you know, that counted. I felt like I trusted him and I trusted him to guide me and be a mentor for me. And I took the job at the University of Washington. So that, uh, the coming to the University of Washington, that's my first and only job. And a big part of it was the influence of Ed Verrier. And I can say in retrospect now, 25 years later, I picked right. Ed Verrier has been an incredible promoter, mentor, role model, and advocate for me, and and now a lifelong friend. So what was it uh, once you arrived at the University of Washington that uh, led you to uh, pursue uh, leadership roles and to eventually uh, to the role you're in now? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and I guess I would – I wish I could tell you it was systematic and deliberate, but I can't. Um, I think that um, I'm not somebody who entered an academic surgical career with a plan of being a department chair. In fact, it is quite the opposite. Uh, I, I was recruited to the University of Washington to be chief of general thoracic surgery. I thought that was great. I was really proud of it as a junior faculty member, and and I continued to be proud of it as a as a full professor, and and I felt really completely gratified with my practice, my partners, my team, um, and what we had been able to do in terms of developing clinical and teaching programs at the University of Washington. And w- without any desire or, or drive, I guess, that I felt I had to be a division chief or a department chair. Um, people asked me to look at positions, and that was flattering, but I really did not do that very much because every time I stepped back and thought, what made me happy – I realized that what made me happy was the clinical practice that I had, the the quality of the residents that I got to work with every day, my partners and my team, and my wife and I and our family was happy in Seattle and at the University of Washington, so it was pretty hard to pull me away to somewhere else. Um, but then things happened, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Verrier, uh, was asked to be director of the uh, Joint Council of Thoracic Surgery Education and and stepped aside from the division chief position, and I was asked to do it, uh, and, and I did, and I liked that even more. I loved, at that stage of my career, you know, helping to, uh, to promote and support 
the clinical research and and teaching programs of the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery. And we have a great division of cardiothoracic surgeries, 16 surgeons doing cardiac, thoracic, and, and congenital surgery. And I love them. I think they're, they're a great team. And I've done that for uh, now eight years, uh, or had done that for eight years. And then um, the another very strong mentor for me over my my career has been Carlos Pellegrini, the department chair who arrived at the University of Washington about a year after I did. But uh, like Ed Verrier, he's been a role model and supporter and friend. Um, and he was promoted to the chief medical officer of all of UW Medicine uh, after 23 years as department chair. And the dean asked me to be interim chair then. Uh, I liked what I was doing, and I think the dean liked what I was doing, and ultimately after uh, a national surge asked me to stay on as the permanent chair. So um, as you can tell, it's not because I kind of sat down and said, here's my path to becoming department chair. No. Uh, it, it was never in my intent, but that doesn't mean I'm not excited to be doing it. I really am. Um, uh, it just wasn't on some written path that I had when I started as a junior faculty member. Definitely. What part of the, the job of, you know, from us as residents, uh, you know, looking up to you, what part of the job excites you the most? You know, you go through different phases of a career and, and as a resident, you're kind of just getting an inkling of this, but there's, because at the resident stage, it's, for lack of a better term, a selfish stage where you're trying to develop yourself. And that's true as a junior faculty member as well. And that's what it should be. You're trying to develop your clinical skills and uh, uh, the research profile that you want to have and the niche that you want to be known for. Um, and over time, I mean, for many people, that dominates their career. And you know, what I've seen in people that I admire is those that have then matured to the point where they're quite comfortable with what they've developed for themselves and what they're excited about is developing others. And, and what got me excited about being department chair is that's what I felt. I felt that I had some of that as a division chief, uh, and on a smaller scale, but as at a department department chair level, I knew that uh, I could really exercise what I was at this stage of my career getting the most satisfaction from, which is helping others develop their careers and being happy and successful from at all levels. So at the resident level, so when I make a phone call and help get one of my general surgery residents a fellowship, and I and they get the fellowship they want, and they come and talk to me about it. I mean, that, that's a great day for me. Oh, yeah. Or one of one of my faculty comes to me and says, you know, they've been nominated for this leadership position, and I get a chance to, you know, either promote that or support that or provide support within the department for them to succeed at it. 
and and that's something that they're passionate about. I mean, the, that's what makes the day for me. Uh, I, I get really excited about those things, and I, I love the people that I work with, and uh, I feel privileged to have the chance to do a little something that can um, um, help advance what they're doing and help them be happy in what they're doing. That is really great. And uh, on, on a little bit of a, a side topic here, before we dive into lung cancer, um, most of our listeners are more or less are general surgery residents and med students inter- interested in general surgery. Uh, and I just wanted to take your opinion and your take on the integration. You know, we're subspecializing earlier and earlier. And how do you foresee uh, cardiothoracic and thoracic inter- uh working with general surgery in the future? Is it, you know, um, and, and what steps are, do we need to take to make sure that general surgery residents are getting the adequate training, um, to be safe, uh, general surgeons? Yeah, it's a, that's a hard one because it's, um, you know, there are aspects of the last part of your question, which is if you have specialists in surgery, then, then general surgeons don't need to be good at cardiothoracic surgery and don't need a lot of exposure. But we also both know that in in many arenas, that's not the case, that uh, general surgeons have thoracic emergencies uh, in a trauma or, or even a non-trauma setting and may work at a um, a smaller hospital that does not have specialists in cardiothoracic surgery. Um, and, and so it is important to get experience in exposure uh, of you know, thoracic anatomy um, and management of common thoracic problems. Um, I'm, I'm working at the University of Washington in developing a rural surgery track uh, because even in general surgery, um, all with the name general surgery, it's still highly specialized, and most of our academic training programs do high-end, tertiary, quaternary-level surgery, and don't get a lot of experience in um, in some of the bread and butter and and niche areas that are taken care of by specialists that one would need to do if you're in a a less urban setting. And obviously the Pacific Northwest covers a, a broad territory and I feel a responsibility as we provide surgeons for our region to provide surgeons that um, in, in general surgery that have a broad base of skills, not just in cardiothoracic, but in urology or gynecology uh, or other subspecialties that are not routinely practiced by general surgery anymore. Absolutely. In terms of the the training aspect, you know, I think that we obviously have the integrated cardiothoracic training programs and and a third of trainees are going that pathway, but that's still two-thirds that are training a traditional route that has general surgery as a prerequisite. Obviously, that's the way I train, and I'm still boarded in general surgery, and um, and certainly for thoracic, I like that because I think there's so much linkage between 
um, general surgery and general thoracic surgery that I'm very happy to have had uh, a full residency in general surgery. But I think that's not as true in cardiac surgery, where mm. uh, even though there are strengths still of combining the uh, general surgery first. There's also weaknesses of that that are offset by spending six years of, of really concentrated training in in cardiovascular procedures. So uh, I don't think there's one route that's best. I th- actually think that it's good to have different routes for different uh, people. Um, and we've actually maintained that at the University of Washington, having both an integrated residency as well as a traditional residency, because I, I've been a strong believer that both are are important and equally valid. Mm, I think that will actually be quite relieving for a lot of our listeners to hear, sir. Well, I yes, I, it should be because I think that um, you know some of us know what we want to be out of the womb. But most of us evolve from experiences just like I've described. And um, I didn't even know that I was going to be a thoracic surgeon as opposed to a cardiac surgeon when I did my cardiothoracic training till towards the end of that and thinking about where what I was excited about and how I wanted to make a difference and how I wanted to uh, have an influence. Mm. Um, and I think that many of us in general surgery, we learn a lot more about, you know, the anatomy, about the pathology and what kind of surgery and what time of type of problems interests us. And, you know, for example, general thoracic surgery, as I say to many of my general surgery residents is surgical oncology with cooler anatomy. <laughs> uh, so, so um, you know, a lot of people that might have a surgical oncology interest might be very interested in morphing to thoracic surgery, which is a lot of oncology uh, with, as I would say, better anatomy. That's fascinating. Um, and cardiac surgery in different ways that, uh, um, that one develops an interest in cardiovascular physiology and and is intrigued by it as a general surgery resident, you know, it's important that we have a good path for those general surgery residents who are are drawn to cardiothoracic to be able to finish their residency and go into a uh, a fellowship and and train as I did and as my whole generation of cardiothoracic surgeons did. And I do not see that going away anywhere in the near future. Hmm, I think this actually segues very naturally into you know our dissection of the day, where we re- really like to ask you how you, the expert, might manage a very challenging situation. Um, so on the topic of lung cancer, could you tell us about any particular exciting or challenging lung cancer operation you've done recently? Yeah, well... I think lung cancer operations are spectacular. The the you know, pulmonary anatomy and and kind of the all of the connections are really f- enjoyable to work with. And but I think if if you said what's a really cool operation that I think is that that is definitely a quaternary level operation. But 
when you can pull it off is a great win for a patient hmm. is um, a carinal pneumonectomy or uh, sometimes called a sleeve pneumonectomy. Um, that's a, a technical tour de force that allows complete resection of a lung cancer uh, in patients with that have kind of specific cancer anatomy that would be deemed unresectable by um, kind of traditional textbook uh, recommendations. And I, I like to overcome those types of limitations. So mm. an operation like a carinal pneumonectomy is especially satisfying to me. Uh, sir, could you take us through a little bit of the basics of the limitations of lung surgery and, uh, you know, why in most centers a crinal pneumonectomy would be considered unresectable? So the, the, there's a variety of an, an anatomical situations where a crinal pneumonectomy might be appropriate, but the most common one is a central right upper lobe tumor that involves the right main stem bronchus. So you get a, you know, the right upper lobe is so close to the carina. If you get a central tumor in the upper lobe, you're, you're essentially at the carina. The problem is that if you've got a tumor encroaching up the right main stem near or to the carina, then even a pneumonectomy will not achieve a negative margin. Uh, and you've got a very high-risk pneumonectomy with a tension on a stump. So if you then uh, do the sleeve part of that or the carinal resection part of that, what you're doing now to achieve a complete uh, oncologic margin is you're dividing the distal trachea above tumor and you're dividing the left main stem bronchus uh, uh, a little bit below the carina so that you can take out the right lung with the distal trachea, carina, and proximal left main stem bronchus. So now you've achieved a complete resection of what appeared to be a quote-unquote unresectable tumor, but you've got the, you know, the problem of having a, a discontinuous airway. You've now got a trachea flopping in the breeze with uh, a left main stem bronchus that's kind of going away from you. And, and uh, so what you then do is ventilate the left lung through a, a sterile endotracheal tube that's placed directly into the left main stem bronchus across the surgical field. Wow. Um, and then you uh, create an anastomosis between the, the distal trachea and the proximal left main stem bronchus to reestablish airway continuity. Um, right, and, and at that point, the sizes of the two lumens are mismatched. Yes, they are mismatched. And you know the technical way that uh, I handle mismatch airway sizes, because we deal with them all the time, we deal with them in lung transplants or other airway resections, um, I prefer the technique uh, that I learned from Dr. Hermes Grillo at Mass General Hospital and, and from uh, Doug Matisson at Mass General Hospital, which is just circumferential placement 
of uh, forovicral sutures, uh, interrupted sutures, and that the you make up the size difference a bit by bit with each individual stitch. And so um, you can do that with a runner. It's a, it's a little harder with a runner. And the uh, I also prefer the aspect of interrupted that at least theoretically allows better vascularity in between stitches in terms of healing uh, and airway anastomosis than, than with a runner. So um, you can, you can make up really any size differential, uh, with just individual placement of interrupted sutures. Mm. So that's what I, I do then one, it, it can be tricky pulling the anastomosis together, um, simply because of, uh, some of the, um, kind of geometry of how the left main stem bronchus comes up. Uh, underneath the aortic arch and the need to kind of pull it out while you're tying it down. Actually, once it's all, once all the anastomosis is tied and you're leaving it alone, then the whole trachea and left main stem kind of tilt over to the left and what seemed to be under some tension is actually on less tension once you're all finished. So at the end of that, you what you've got is a smooth, trachea bronchial connection. So mm-hmm. instead of having a, a bronchial stump, if you did a pneumonectomy, you've got you know just a tube that has a, 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 a nice anastomosis. And uh, you've done a complete resection of a central lung cancer that was deemed unresectable and, and with good outcomes in terms of uh, you know, ability to get patients through that and for them to have a good cancer outcome. Hmm. Sir, how about managing the vascular um, supply to the right lung? How how do you do that? Uh, So that's done just like you would do for a pneumonectomy. So essentially you're doing a pneumonectomy, but the complex part is the uh, is the additional airway resection and reconstruction. So the pulmonary artery and pulmonary veins are handled just like you would for a pneumonectomy. That is uh, a central division with either oversewing or stapling of the central vessels. Now, I will say that you know, the whole reason that one is doing a carinal resection is because the tumor is quite central. And so that might require an intrapericardial dissection to get proximal to tumor. And the other thing I found with central right-sided tumors is sometimes they involve the lateral wall of the superior vena cava. So sometimes when I'm doing a carinal resection, um, I may be doing a concomitant uh, partial resection of the superior vena cava with reconstruction. But the 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 emphasis I would make is the full training in cardiac and thoracic surgery uh, is what makes it feasible to do all of this. Right. You know, getting really comfortable around the 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 heart, around the central vessels, having the techniques of major vascular reconstruction, but but also the anatomy and sort of the impact that that operation makes. It's a technically cool operation, mm-hmm. 
And it's a clinically cool operation because it takes somebody from palliative treatment to curative intent treatment and and with long-term survivors. Wow. Sir, postoperatively, do you encounter any challenges with either stenosis or, I mean, an asthmatic dehiscence, anything scary like that? Well, unfortunately, yes. Uh, the, these are big operations, and they have risks. And, and, and that airway complications, although uncommon, when they occur are quite serious. If you get a, uh, a partial dehiscence and then get a post-pneumonectomy, bronchopleural fistula and empyema, that's a horrific set of complications that is really challenging to take care of. Um, Stenosis by itself, not common. Usually stenosis is because you've had uh, a partial dehiscence that then has some secondary healing. Um, I'd say a common but less serious problem is uh, having problems of uh, retained secretions of the left lung in the early postoperative period. And that's because the area where you have an anastomosis, the mucociliary clearance isn't really great through that area. So we're pretty aggressive about uh, toilet bronchoscopy in the, in the first few days after surgery if the patients are having uh, any sign of trouble clearing secretions to try to minimize uh, getting a, a post-op pneumonia in the uh, solitary lung. Do you have any pointers for new residents that are trying to um, traverse the bronchoscope across a fresh anastomosis? Uh, no, it's it's actually not a problem to go or past a fresh anastomosis. Uh, it because at least with a bronchoscope, you're seeing what you're doing. So um, it it is learning how to navigate a bronchoscope so you're not whacking all the walls uh, <laughs> while you're doing it. It's one of the things I work on teaching my resident is to become adept at keeping in the middle of the lumen, which also gives you the best uh, viewing. But I actually really don't worry about people bronchoscoping somebody with a fresh anastomosis, uh, particularly a surgeon or surgery resident. I guess I worry a little bit about a pulmonary fellow, uh, but maybe that's unjust in terms of my biases. Well, great, sir. Kind of on the same topic, we're going to dive into our tips and tricks. And so uh, a lot of our listeners, like I said earlier, are general surgeons, but, you know, we can find ourselves in some tough uh, situations in the chest. Um, So the first, as we're talking about the open lobectomy type of situation, uh, maybe we're assisting our thoracic colleague and and we get into uh, bleeding from the hilum um, in a a lobectomy. What What are the principles of control and management of this? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, you like it not to happen, but of course uh, it happens. And and the first is to not panic, uh, which we we all have a tendency to do when a huge amount of blood wells up, which it does with either a venous or arterial injury in the pulmonary hilum, um, because it's a low pressure system. So uh, although a lot of blood comes up fast. It's also really easy to control, usually with a gentle finger pressure. It doesn't need to be the type of finger pressure you put on a femoral artery. Just just getting a finger over the, the hole um, will stop it. And and getting that stopped with, with a finger 
accurately on it, and then pausing. Everybody take a deep breath, you know, make sure the anesthesiologists know what's going on, suck and get the, the field cleared. So that's the first principle. The second principle is to get to then, um, unless it's something, looks like something really simple, and I'm going to, let's presume it's not, then you really ought to get central vascular control. And one of the mistakes that people make is they think that that means just getting around and controlling the pulmonary artery. But actually, the pulmonary system, the back bleeding is equally vigorous to uh, antegrade bleeding. So unless you've stopped the, the inflow from both the artery and both veins, it, it doesn't slow the bleeding at all. And so uh, with two surgeons working together, one with a finger that's calmly got the blood, the bleeding under control, the other one uh, uh, working to get central control of the pulmonary artery and pulmonary veins uh, so that those can be isolated and, uh, if necessary, temporarily clamped. Um, and, and then accurately identifying the hole. Um, you need to see it well. I think mistakes that people make in blood vessels all the time, but you know, in the hilum is getting a rough idea where it is and then putting some big stitches in it. And, and I think you need to see exactly what is the hole and they ought to be small meticulous stitches that repair the vessel, not that just wad some tissue together that often it still bleeds. And now you can't tell where it's coming from together and there's still blood coming out. Uh, I think if one follows the, it stays calm, you know, controls it with a finger, you, you can, uh, you can salvage all of those. Uh, I've never seen a situation where we've had to, uh, convert to a urgent pneumonectomy for bleeding control. That should, it's almost never be necessary. Hmm. Uh, let's say it were to go in that direction. Are there any other pointers that you would have? Um, no, because I think that if you if you're headed towards what you think is an emergency pneumonectomy, hmm. part of that is central control of the vessels. So if you've got central control of the vessels, and then you you what you would have to do to do a pneumonectomy, then I don't know why you can't clamp those uh. and find the bleeder and fix it, rather than make the patient suffer a pneumonectomy. Yeah, I think that's a good pointer. Um, sir, I'd like to take this scenario over to the emergency department. Let's say your resident is evaluating a patient who is quickly decompensating and appears to have massive hemoptysis. Uh, what pointers would you have for managing this scenario? Yeah, massive hemoptysis is hard, particularly if somebody is rapidly deteriorating. Um, you know, I think the first uh, thing is to figure out uh, besides all of the usual resuscitative measures that are going along simultaneously, um, where do you think it's coming from? Do you have any clues of where it's coming from? Does the patient have a known uh, hyalur lung cancer and has been getting chemotherapy and radiation? So you've got you've got some history that says, well, they're probably bleeding from that, or they they've been treated for tuberculosis for 
the last six months and, and have a bleed, it's helpful to know why are they bleeding. Hmm. Then the second thing that's helpful to know is from which side or which lobe, which side is key? Is it right or left? Uh, and and sometimes if you if you know a pathology or if there's been time for imaging that shows pathology, you can have a good hint of sightedness, but you still might not even know. But that, that's the the next thing you want to know. The next is how how well are, is the patient able to clear their airway? Sometimes. They're having massive hemoptysis, but are, are doing okay with clearing their airway while you're evaluating things, and other times they're not. Mm. If they're not, like you're describing, then, then I'd say you need to be in the OR. You need to be in the OR with rigid bronchoscopy. And if you don't know how to do rigid bronchoscopy, you need to find somebody who can mm-hmm. because you won't control that with a flexible bronchoscope, meaning when you stick the flexible bronchoscope in and the anesthesiologist has an ET tube in, you're just going to be swimming in blood and clot and not able to see much of anything, most likely. And and you'll need a rigid bronchoscope to keep up with that level of bleeding and to get things uh, clear to the point that you can see, is it right or left, and is it the upper lobe, or, or, or you don't know. And so um, you need the larger suction and the ability to uh, help ventilate through a rigid bronchoscope most of the time. And then, you know, if you can tell where it's coming from uh, and you're in this acute situation, you're now in the OR, uh, it's an aspect of trying to protect the part of the lung that's uh, where it's not bleeding. Right. Uh, and tamponade the part where it is. And so if you can identify it at the lobar level, you can use a, you can put a Fogarty catheter through the ET tube and put it into that lobe and blow it up uh, and try to tamponade it in that lobe and protect the other lobes. If you, if, if you just have to pick right or left side, then it's, then you can use also a, a Fogarty or you can use a bronchial blocker ET tube and, and blow up the balloon in the side that's bleeding and try to keep and protect the, the other side so that you're both protecting the good airway as well as trying to tamponade the site, site where it's bleeding. Hmm. And where along this algorithm would you uh, place interventional radiology? So interventional radiology fits in if you've got a major homoptysis, but the patient's not deteriorating rapidly the way you described. Mm, if yes, the sir. patient is doing okay, then then interventional radiology would be my first step, not my last step. But uh, if the patient's deteriorating, you can't have them in, a, in IR. They'll die. Uh, but if the patient has massive homoptysis or maybe it's stopped now for a little period of time, uh, IR uh, for most things, um, is is very helpful for both narrowing down the site that it's coming from and likely being an intervention that can allow stabilization of the patient and if, if a surgery is needed, allowing that surgery to be semi-elective rather than emergent with much better results. Well, that was very helpful uh, for all of us out there. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, we're going to dive into our final five here. These are some questions we ask our uh, leaders in surgery to get them to know them a little more personally. 
Uh, first question is, is uh, do you listen to music in the operating room? And if so, what type of music? So I go through hot and cold phases of listening to music. Um, I like to listen to music, but I get annoyed when it's so quiet in the background that all I hear is a bass beat. And so <laughs> in that case, I'd rather have it off. And I find that the nurses turn it down. All I hear is that something is happening, but I can't hear what it is. So I go on and off of music. Uh, if I do listen to music, um, uh, uh, I like uh, some kind of old school hip hop. I like uh, uh, T.I., Flowrider, Pitbull. Uh, I like uh, Eminem. Uh, I've, I've long been an Eminem fan. Eminem, I, mean, I would never I, have guessed. Well, I, I've actually tried to say to people that Eminem's a great white rapper. <laughs> and if I think one of your later questions might be, what would I be? And, I, I, you know, I'd really like to be Eminem. If I could be just a white rapper, that'd be cool. Wow, that is fantastic. Sir, for our next question, we'd like to ask, do you have any hobbies, talents, or interests outside of the operating room? Uh, yes, I, I, um, I have a house in the mountains uh, in central Washington. My wife and I love to hike there. We water ski, snow ski. Uh, I've been, I, I broke a rib this summer water skiing. <laughs> so, so I'm a little... I haven't water skied a lot since uh, that earlier this year. Um, I I like to do weightlifting, and the lake where we have our place is windy a lot in the summer, which means I can't water ski. So I'm trying to learn how to kiteboard. I took lessons, but I still I still suck. I'm 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 not a good kiteboarder. So I, that's that's still something I'm trying to learn. Yeah, that sounds quite difficult. How many uh, plates did the trauma surgeons place on your ribs? Uh, none. Uh, I kept them, you know, far away from my rib. It, <laughs> it, not non-displaced, so I think I'm okay. Great, great. So, kind of on the same topic, uh, can you name a favorite trip or vacation you've been on? Um, it's hard to pick favorites because I like to travel. I've been a, a, a had a long hobby of adventure travel. But uh, I guess one I'd pick is uh, a recent one, um, backpacking in Torres del Paine National Park in southern Patagonia, southern Chile, mm. with my family. Uh, and I've been to that area several times. I love that area of, um, of Chile, uh, right at the tip of South America, and backpacking in the mountains, and, and we had great weather. Uh, it really could not have been better. That sounds awesome. Uh, sir, for this next question, you correctly predicted we like to ask what you would be doing if not medicine. Taking M&M and wrapping off the table, what would you choose? <laughs> well, I'm disappointed you took that off the table. I, you know, But I think I, I probably would not be good at it, but even though I might aspire to it. But uh, I guess uh, it would be related to what I was just talking about in adventure travel. I would be an adventure travel guide. I would take people whitewater rafting on the Zimbabwe or, or hiking in Patagonia or uh, to a, a, a safari in Botswana. That's, that's, that's what I would like to do if I was not a doctor, to take people on adventure travel trips. Did you discover this passion once you moved out to the Northwest? Because this seems like a very Northwest uh, sort of passion rather than an East Coast uh 
No, I've had that uh, well before I came to the uh, Northwest. Okay. Uh, in fact, is um, a separate story that I, w- I won't dive into deeply, but uh, I actually worked in Antarctica for four months in between leaving my residency at Mass General Hospital and starting my uh, uh, career here at the University of Washington. And and that was my first experience in Torres del Paine and, and in Patagonia, but I spent uh, f- you know, the better part of uh, four months in Antarctica. Wow. We'll have to maybe have a whole other podcast about that. That sounds quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story that even includes some surgery along the way. But, uh, but that, yes, that that would get involved to talk about. The story I always think of with that is uh, the self-appendectomy of the Russian surgeon uh, when you hear of Antarctica. But Well, it's not a self-appendectomy, <laughs> but, but I did an appendectomy in, in Antarctica. Wow, wow. Uh, so our final question, uh, if you could go back in time and meet yourself on the first day of in- internship, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Well, I guess uh, if I could do it over, I'd, I'd like to be smarter than I, I was. Maybe I, uh, maybe I shouldn't have taken that second year of medical school and, and missed it to work in Larry Cohn's lab. <laughs> but, um, I, I think when I look backwards at how I approached residency and what I would say to people now and what I would do different is is to embrace it all uh, and to to not put your life on hold as a resident, to enjoy life while you're a resident. I, I think that I felt like I had to kind of set everything aside. It was kind of the culture of the time and, and so I think a lot of other people are like that, but I guess I hope we are better than that now and that that being a resident is part of life uh, as opposed to something that you do for a while and then you go back to life. So I'd say don't put things on hold and embrace your family, your friends, the things you love to do uh, and make them part of the work that you love to do and they don't need to be separate. And a second thing I'd say is learn from everyone, Mm. everyone at the hospital from the uh, health assistant to the nurse to the chair of surgery has a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom and be humble and, and drink it all in, uh, and, and be willing to, to learn from everyone you're working around. I guess the last advice is be the best. Yeah. Well, Dr. Wood, this has been fantastic. And I think there's been so much great advice in here for us to take personally. And we hope we can, you know, emulate uh, what you've been able to accomplish. Thank you so much for your time here today. Well, this has been great. I've enjoyed uh, talking with you. I'm I'm a little worried that word is going to get out that I should have been a rapper, but uh, I guess that's okay. I I revealed my deep dark secret. <laughs> but thanks for including me. I'm uh, excited to be part of your your podcast. Thank you again, sir. Until next time, dominate the day. <laughs> <laughs>